This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Um, the last few weeks, we have stepped outside the news cycle, really looked within and tried as hard as we can not to look without. But today, we, that is myself, Waleed Ali, and my co-host, Scott Stevens, make what I think is an emphatic return to the <laughs> news cycle. Um, With a thud. <laughs> yeah. Um, to be fair, over the past month, I suppose it's been five weeks now, hasn't it, Scott, that we've been doing that, there have been lots of things that have happened that we've thought, you know, we really should address that. But no, we stuck to our guns. We we got through it. We may even go back to some of those things and address them at some point if it doesn't feel a little bit too past the event to do that. Of course, we were always going to come back to the world this week, but I think it's fair to say, Scott, the world came rushing back to us, really. Uh, of course, we have to go to the conflict that's engulfed, once again, Israel-Palestine. Can I just say from the outset, though, Waleed, this is one of those topics that, and I mean this without exaggeration, it, it keeps me awake at night. Uh, and this discussion kept me awake last night. I was up, couldn't get back to sleep at two o'clock this morning, um, which I suspect is just about around the time that you were beginning to turn in. So yeah, you know, you who, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nocturnally, maybe we pass one another in our, well, not quite dreams, but anyway. Mm. Um, look, this is this is so difficult. If you don't mind, let's suspend how we got to where we got uh, over the last uh, week and a half now, I suppose it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are proximate causes. There are longer causes. There's been a long run-up to this. Um, to anybody who's paid any attention to that parcel of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, knows that there is a kind of sickening cyclicality uh, of precisely these kinds of conflicts. And there seems to be something, um, I wouldn't say arbitrary, but because of the nature of the conflict, because of the narratives that flow through that parcel of land, because of the nature of the claims that attend to that land, and because of the deep narratives that are embodied by the people who occupy that land. By occupy, I just mean live. It means that things that may well seem to be minor domestic or civic squabbles or even minor, relatively minor legal or religious disputes are freighted, are weighted with a kind of significance that tends to bear the past along with them. And I think in a very real way, that's what we've seen. Um, it's going to be up to others. Well, maybe it might be up to us as well to judge whether uh, some of these events took place on purpose, whether they've been exploited or not. But I think one of the things, Waleed, that just makes this conflict so difficult, and, and and I'm really hoping that by the time we get to the end of our conversation, no one's going to feel that we've engaged in this glibly. It's certainly ha- not how either of us feels about it. Um, but what makes this so difficult is the incommensurability of the conflict. The fact that you can have a single date, which for one people is cause of celebration. One Jewish writer who I love quite dearly has described 1948 as perhaps the greatest moment in the history of Judaism, second only to the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And to another people, that precise same date is a moment of all-encompassing destitution, deprivation, dispossession 
unspeakable mourning. Uh, The fact that a single event can be interpreted by one government or by one group of people as a legitimate act of self-defense, of the security of the civilians or the citizens of a nation. And that precise same event can be seen as just one in a litany of daily humiliations, uh, of reaffirmations of the expendability of the lives of other citizens of that same nation. The fact that if you pull on any one of these threads, you come up against a disagreement about the same day, the same event, the same plot of land that are irreconcilable in their differences. And it seems to me that it's one of the things that makes this dispute, especially for those who kind of conduct it outside of this particular piece of land, those of us who are maybe engaged with it from afar or deeply morally concerned about it, it means that there is something about it that tends towards moral absolutism, which means ultimately that the debate tends towards having a kind of existential dimension. If you concede, I think there's a real fear on both sides. If you concede too much, if you give too much ground, either in your conversation, in your argument, or in policy, If you concede too much, that may well be the thin end of the wedge that leads to one's extinction. And that that makes any kind of discussion, moral, political, religious, incredibly complicated. Do you know what, as you say that, a way maybe to illustrate, this just popped into my head, so apologies if it's not a very well-formed thought, but a way to illustrate that would be take our attitude to, in Australia I mean, to um, boat arrivals. Mm-hmm. or even COVID or something, mm-hmm. where the feeling seems to be that if a single boat were to arrive or a single exception were to be made, yeah. then suddenly there would be a flood of, of boats or there would be an outbreak of COVID or whatever. And so there needs to be just a, a complete resoluteness about the response. Uh, if, if you imagine... Actually, Waleed, I mean, Rob Mann, our mutual friend Rob Mann, has described this as Australia's gradual approach towards what he calls border absolutism. Mm. Any any chink in the armour, any giving of ground is the beginning of the end. Yeah. Now, imagine taking that and expanding that kind of calculation, I suppose, to something as vast and all-encompassing as a conflict of this sort mm. with... Not, not only it's not only a border conflict, right? It, it's no. so much more than that. With with the historic dimensions and the historic claims, that and I think the important point about those claims is, at least from the distance that I can only observe it, that they seem incommensurate. They, they don't seem to be claims that can be reconciled, and so you necessarily find yourself in a situation where one must triumph over the other within the scheme of any particular perspective, mm. and when you're in that world of one needing to triumph over the other, in some ways it's extraordinary there hasn't been more conflict. Yes, I think that's right. And and, and believe it or not, Willie, I actually think that points to a degree of optimism, especially over the last two years um, that we may want to get to at at some stage. I, I don't see the situation as being entirely bleak. In fact, before the current bout of violence, one of the most remarkable events, I think, in modern Jewish political history was poised to happen, and that was the formation of a coalition government of soft right-wing, 
centrist and Arab parties, uh, forming for the first time a coalition government that was both Jewish and Arab. I mean, that is, that is an extraordinary development, which has, of course, been derailed by precisely what we've seen take place. Um, I think the way that you frame that, that if any concession is made, if anything is given, uh, then it could very well be the beginning of the end. And that fear, that kind of constant threat of existential jeopardy, the fact that that flows through everything, I think that's absolutely right, especially in, say, border disputes or in relationships to people with whom one is simply unsure whether they are partners in peace and partners in dialogue or secret covert conspirators with one's mortal enemy. I mean, that's a very, very, you know, that, that kind of pervasive fear that runs through everything, that's a very serious... Or, or what can I add, even just on yeah. basic security calculations on the Israeli side, it's a, like it's a common refrain that I come across anyway in Israeli discourse is the minute we provide any kind of compromise then all that happens is that that encourages Hamas and rockets come. Yeah, right? yeah. And so what do you do with that? Well, yes. And, and, and in fact, you know, given the experience of the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza in, what was it, 2005, and the showering of rockets almost immediately on, on its heels, it, it's not as if some of these fears aren't without historical justification. But I think, well, there's another, if you like, imminent calculation, which concerns me, I wouldn't say even more, but for me is, is a parallel concern. There was a thought experiment that William James, the great American pragmatist philosopher, uh, engaged in, which, which I actually love. He said he was interrogating some of the utopian political philosophy of some of his predecessors and some contemporaries. Uh, this is in a wonderful essay called uh, Moral Philosophy and uh, the Moral Philosopher or the Moral Philosopher and the Moral Life, something like that. He says, imagine a utopian society where millions of people live opulent, protected, sheltered lives. There's more than enough to go around. But the conditions of this opulence, the conditions of the success are predicated on a single child being imprisoned someplace, living in a condition of unremitting terror and torture. Would that utopia be worth the cost of the immiseration, the torture, the terror of that child? I often think about that. And by the way, the great science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin wrote a short story on precisely the basis of that thought experiment called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, Omelas being the name of this utopian community. And it just strikes me that one of the calculations then, because of the existential Calculus. One of the calculations that's been made um, by, by expressions, for instance, of the Israeli government is that it is worth the immiseration, the terrorization, the impoverishment of a people. It's worth the daily humiliation of a people in order for a certain degree of safety, security, pleasure, prosperity to be ensured. And it's not that that's not a real utilitarian calculation. All sorts of governments make those kinds of – every time we imprison someone, we make that kind of The asylum seeker example. The asylum seeker example. It's, that's exactly right. We make that calculation all the time. But it's when the soul of a nation accommodates itself, I think, to that calculation, when they become immune to the preparedness to be cruel. 
I think there's something there, and this is why. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if it's impolitic for me to do this, but that's why. Going back to the late 1920s, right through to the mid-1930s, so many of the early Zionists were terrified of what the oppression of a Palestinian people would do to the soul of the future nation of Israel. They were worried what the preparedness to be cruel would do to the inner moral life of that nation. So it seems to me that there are these external calculi and then there are these internal calculi, which um, which I think if we skim over them too easily, if we just shrug our shoulders that this is just, you know, nece- this is a necessary price that needs to be paid for the security of, of a people, it seems to me we're giving way too much moral ground at that point. So I think the way of framing that, that or the way you frame that there is, I think that highlights a particular perspective on it that I think is mm. useful. But the problem I see in going too far with it is that I think if you, if you try to transpose it on the situation in the Middle East, I think you would have far too many voices for it to become useful who would simply deny the parallel. Mm. Right? So the difference is this child that is um, being destroyed for the creation of this utopia, we presume is a sort of a pure isolated subject whose torture is enacted merely for its own sake. Like there's no... Mm. But also uh, who, which, which has no agency of its own. Right. But also then no is, real history, no... That's okay. right, exactly. Okay. No, you're right. I, I mean, I don't know how many conversations you've had with Israelis, and, and by Israelis I don't mean, you know, the far right of Israeli politics who, for example, are all for the expansion of settlements and all, all that sort of stuff. I mean even people who can be quite critical of the Israeli government in general. Mm. But they just would not see the occupation of the Palestinian territories in the terms you've described them. Yes, that's right. Now, similarly, just about everyone I've spoken to of a Palestinian background or indeed in the Palestinian territories, and I was able to visit there uh, probably about eight years ago, and not into Gaza, I went into the West Bank, but nearly everyone that I've spoke to there. In fact, I can't think of a single exception. Would describe it in exactly that way, right? The, mm-hmm. the sort of the the ever presence of of the occupation, the idea of national security as mere pretext rather than as a genuinely held belief. They'll take you into all of the discussion about areas A, B, and C, and how they've been carved up, and what that means for resources and all this sort of thing. So, in other words, far from it being merely an argument about history, one of the things that I think makes it so intractable is that there are never-ending arguments about present facts. Mm, that's right. So even if you want to construct a thought experiment to try to shed light on the ethical calculations that are going on here, and I'm not saying you're wrong to do so, I'm just saying that the problem that I see, just as an observer, is that they never get you very far because the terms of the thought experiment itself or the, the extent to which the thought experiment is a true analogue just themselves become disputed. Yeah. And so it devolves into an ever-running dispute. I mean, I guess this is not the show to do this because we're the minefield, we're not a news-type show and we discuss things usually in a more abstract theoretical way. But even the current conflict, the facts that make that up what exactly happened in Sheikh Jarrah, for mm. example? What exactly happened at, at Masjid al-Aqsa in those last nights of Ramadan? Mm. Every one of those, 
I will talk to different people and have radically different accounts of that, of those things that seem to have nothing to do with each other. So when you're in, inhabiting, I suppose, what we might even call different epistemic worlds, it's not, it's not merely a matter of, I mean, I suppose that feeds the existential nature of the politics. But even if you were try to say, as we've, you know, we've discussed this before in the context of Anzac Day, right? That, mm. you know, might there be a benefit? Sometimes is there a moral obligation to forget history or to forget the past, right? But if you were to ask that question in this context, even that I don't think would get you very far. Because no, A, no right. fact makes any sense without the past. Mm. And B, there's, so, there's such radical disagreement on the mere facts of things. I'll, I'll give you just one quick example. We see that Gaza is now without electricity. The humanitarian consequences of that are enormous. When I talk to an Israeli about it who says to me that the reason there is no electricity is that the electricity was destroyed by rockets fired by Hamas and that when Israeli soldiers go to repair it, they get fired upon, what am I meant to do with that information? What do I make of that? Do I say, okay, well, you say that and that's just propaganda? Do I say, do I take that at face value? How, how are we as people who can only really operate on this at a distance meant to negotiate these incommensurate claims, not just in history but in the moment? Yeah. And my window onto this is media coverage, which necessarily has all kinds of problems associated with it. Mm. Look, Walid, you're absolutely right. You've got no argument on any of those points from me. On one level, what you've just done is you've demonstrated the inherent dangers of using thought experiments. I want to come back to the thought experiments. Danger is not the right word. No, no, sorry. I'd say limitation. The impotence. And particularly in an example like this. Yes, but let me just try to follow this with, with two very, very quick observations or two quick contentions. I think one is one of the things that that particular thought experiment does is it forces you to place yourself in the position of the one being tortured and ask yourself, if you were that person, is the sacrifice of your life, is it worth? Because, you know, I, I suppose the thing that you would fall back on is maybe the pain that this person feels isn't real pain, or maybe this person doesn't feel pain the way that we do. That was one of the great alibis that surrounded uh, the torture, the lynching, the whipping, the enslavement of African Americans for, for centuries. They don't feel pain. They don't feel attachment to their children the way that we do. So I think one of the things that that does is it forces us to deepen our perspective on those whose lives we believe must be sacrificed in order for us to enjoy a degree of safety, security, prosperity, whatever. The other point that you raised, though, and I'm not sure if you meant to do it, but the very suspicion, the disbelief that attends these incommensurate narratives. So my people are telling the truth. My narrative goes all the way down, and my people feel the terror thoroughly, entirely, whereas they are just propagandists. They are just confecting a kind of deep attachment to the land whereby it's just opportunism. Or, or they're confecting the cause of their misery. Yes, precisely right. Yeah. That, I think, is the very thing in these sorts of moral conversations that we have to disallow from the very beginning. Not because propaganda doesn't take place. Not because cynicism or opportunism aren't real. 
or that people aren't cynical or opportunist. But if you judge another person's expression of a degree of soul pain, of a degree of agony or terror over their place and the precarity of their place in this land, in this place, in relationship to this threat, if you begin with a disbelief that they have the capacity of feeling this in the same way that I do, that they have the capacity to feel loss in the same way that I do, and you proceed then on that basis as if I have more access to your, to your deeper uh, intentions, your deeper motivations than in fact you do, it seems to me that we're in mor- moral no man's land. You're beginning from the premises. And I'm, I'm not saying you're doing this, Waleed, but I'm saying you're beginning from the premise of a degree of dehumanization, that the other person isn't a real partner in conversation because they really can't feel the same way that I do. And that's why it seems to me that if we are to proceed in any morally intelligible way, on this conflict, and this is a really controversial thing to say, I realize, but it seems to me that you have to begin with the presumption of deep moral agency, of authentic uh, emotional attachment to that place, of real experiences, of trauma, of belonging, of attachment uh, to land and to others. And just to go one step further, it seems to me you have to begin from the premise that you accept the legitimacy of the maximal claims being made by both sides. Because as soon as you say they aren't really a people, they're just interlopers. Or they aren't they don't really have an indigenous connection to this place. Mm-hmm. They're simply European colonists dressed up as Jews. As soon as you go there, then you're shifting everything. And again, I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm saying one who participates in this debate are shifting everything back onto existential grounds where it's simply a zero-sum game. So it seems to me the only way for this to make sense in moral terms, and I believe the only way to proceed democratically, politically, is to grant the full humanity of those who are living through this trauma, the full, almost accept in advance the authenticity of what is being said, and to grant the full, the maximal legitimacy of the claims that are being made, and then work out what sacrifices need to be made, what trust needs to be garnered, And then to accord those sacrifices, I can't think of any other language to use, a degree of sacredness that is commensurate to the history that then attends to the claims to the land itself. I think that's very theoretically elegant. You you understand the possibility for exploitation that exists. Of course I do. Of course I do. Hence we end up back where we started. Yep. Hmm. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. You can also catch the podcast uh, because it exists in a podcast form anytime you like. The ABC Listen app is where you can listen to it at any time uh, on your demand. But you can also just follow The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. Scott, who do we have today? Uh, a very brave soul indeed. Ayel Meroz is a senior lecturer on human rights and international peace and security in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. I'll, I know it's been an incredibly busy and a soul-wearying last few weeks for you. Thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you for the invitation. So one of the things that Waleed and I have bracketed out so far, because I guess we wanted to lay a degree of, if you like, moral or even to some extent historical framework before proceeding to the next stage of the conversation, we haven't really discussed, though Waleed alluded to them, some of the seemingly minor, although in the end not minor at all, events that precipitated, that led up to the current explosion of violence. Do you want to step us through, if you like, the three steps that brought us to where we are now? 
You mean in the current uh, round of violence? Yes, please. Um, I think, I mean, a lot have been written and a lot have been, as you say, debated over the facts, as uh, Walid rightly said, we we seem to, once we establish, and, and no, I wouldn't say both sides, I would say all sides, have a yeah. long established a problem definition of what is happening and, and are now judging every new fact based on this conditioning, this indoctrination, if you like, and the narrative. So, but uh, what seems to have happened based on my understanding is uh, a series of, uh, of mistakes, a series of uh, confrontation, violent uh, reactions uh, from different parties, mainly in, around Jerusalem, that uh, led to an escalation between peaceful worshippers, uh, Muslims, uh, during the holy months of Ramadan, in and around the old city, uh, with the Jerusalem police and with ultra-nationalist Jewish, uh, mainly youth, uh, that ended up in some violent clashes uh, just outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque, was also impacted, as you mentioned, by uh, a threat of eviction of some Palestinian families from homes in the old city or out, just outside the old city that have been living there for 70 years. So a series of escalations that uh, you don't know who wanted it, who didn't want it, but there's certainly some elements who were in favor of this escalation, that led to the uh, beginning of the firing of rockets by the Hamas from Gaza, and uh, then all hell broke loose. So that's basically the, you know, the the prelude to this round of violence. I don't call it the conflict; I call it the round of violence because the conflict has been going on for a hundred years. So uh, we are, we're never out of conflict. Mm. So even though, as you just state that quite simply, do would you agree with? my description of each of those elements as having some kind of essential contestation surrounding them. So the, the minute Look, we, if think... we picked one, we could pull on a thread and we would find there would be black and white versions or accounts of those events. Well, certainly some events are, are controversial, but uh, I think what needs to be you know said is that it is not only what has been talked about, but at least as much what has been ignored, because when you're running a polarized debate, then the most common thing would be, yes, but, because I choose to highlight any facts. And again, these facts, as you say, are, are debatable because we, we tend to interpret them in the way that suits our purposes, or as we, as in people who are uh, personally involved or in the conflict or supporting one side or the other, but uh, beyond that, uh, I think that there are some events and there are some people that would not debate, for example, the, the violent reaction. Uh, I'm giving you an example of, of the ultra-nationalist Jewish uh, youth in Jerusalem because they're proud of it. So they would say, yes, we did that, but we did that because so-and-so did this or, or because of that reason or because this is our country or or whatever you want. So, so not all facts are being debated, but certainly, and that, that has been going on. I, I wouldn't devalue the significance and importance of, his, of debates over historical facts, but I think that in, in many cases, yes, you would, along the line and, and over the years, you would find the facts that uh, you know, great debates lead to, to strong reactions or Yeah, but I think certainly, say, particularly in the case of Sheikh Jarrah, that 
I mean, there seems to be a degree of of inattentiveness to the extent to which the threat or the court case involving the threat of the eviction of six families from East Jerusalem. I mean, there are obviously legal claims that that particular bit of property was in fact owned uh, by Jews prior to 1948. It's uh, still but subject to appeal, am I right? Still this subject to well, case? yes. Well, I mean, the, the the ruling hasn't been handed down. It's been it's been delayed, and and, and rightly so. Certainly in, in the current context. But I think what's what's missed, re- just regardless of the legal issues surrounding the matter, the fact that this is this resonates as a kind of minor experience of the Nakba or the dispossession. I think it's even even if certain facts are not in dispute. I think the extent to which those facts are given particular weight by the depth of experience, by the emotional narrative that then runs through them, I think that's the extent to which certain actions, which may well be regarded by some with cooler heads as being relatively innocuous or just matters of security or just matters of legal dispute, I think it's the fact that they've they've not been sufficiently regarded or maybe in some cases they've been too regarded as having a kind of emotional weight. They've been regarded as being unnecessarily provocative and therefore wide open to either the experience of kind of daily humiliation or open to ongoing conflict. But it's also, isn't it, the legal scaffolding that surrounds these things? So as I understand the situation in Sheikh Jarrah, and Ayal, tell me if I've got this wrong, the claim on the property is pursuant to an Israeli law that allows Jews a right to property that was theirs before 1948. And then you have legal arguments or factual evidentiary arguments over whether that can be established in respect to a property. But so they have a legal basis to mount that claim under Israeli law, but there's no similar claim that Palestinians can make about land that they had under 1948. And so you have built into the structure of that legal environment the symbolism of all this, you know what I mean? So that, that any individual case like this or any group of cases like this sort of carries with it. it it's symbolically pregnant from the get-go. Is there anything I've got wrong in that no, I description think, of the facts? I, no, I think you were quite accurate. Uh, the The information I have does point to the fact that uh, this was originally in the 19th century uh, Jewish uh, property and what you said is true because in Israeli law, there are advantages in, in, uh, for Jews and discrimination against Palestinians, many of whom had to leave their, their property in 1948, including those families who've been living in Sheikh Jarrah now as initially as refugees for 70 years. But that's one of the problems because international law does support the right of these families to stay in these houses over what is now you know, accepted in Israeli law because of the uh, fact that they've lived there for so long and because of the fact that, you know, it seems like the attempt to evict them is not based on genuine uh, needs of the owners to live there, but out of nationalistic or nationalist uh, uh, reasons. So I think if the uh, the court, uh, obviously the high court is yet to rule on it, but if the high court did take into account safeguards and protections in international law, then I think that uh, hopefully uh, these families will be uh, allowed to stay in their homes. Okay, so if if the discussion we're having about this is correct, and no doubt we'll hear from people if there are people who think it's not, Scott, but like, mm. if that's true, it becomes very difficult, doesn't it, to describe this as 
an apparently minor act because infused into it from the very beginning is the scope of something enormous. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it can't – and I know the Israeli government has described this as a you know property dispute, a private matter between two parties, but the law that makes it – what's the word? Litigable? Between these two parties is itself infused with a kind of historic grandeur, right? And so there can Look, what, be no uh, small act here. What I'm, uh, I guess, the word upset is, uh, you know, what I'm upset about is that uh, if it wasn't for the link made to uh, what was happening in Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and then with Gaza, then most of the world would have just turned blind eye to what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah because these things and these events have been happening for decades now, but uh, hardly anyone other than the Palestinians themselves that have this festering wound of dispossession and are therefore, uh, you know, mindful of what is happening. But the rest of the world, including, uh, you know, Jews uh, in Israel are just looking the other way. So I think it is, it is important and it, it is actually a positive thing that uh, such uh, challenges and such uh, difficult uh, problems have been uh, raised up and given at least, I'm saying at least, uh, you know, the benefit of uh, a few days of, of, of fame because even now, as soon as the, you know, the, this round of violence in Gaza is going to uh, end, how long is it before, uh, you know, international public opinion and international media are turning to the next crisis and, and the, uh, you know, the story of the, Palestinian and the Israelis is again uh, goes down into us versus them and a few maybe diehard uh, supporters of uh, either side. Mm. Look, I'll, I, I'm very, very glad you've brought up what happens when this current violence subsides, uh, which God willing, it, it will soon. I suppose one of the things that has probably disturbed me most of everything that I've seen over the last little while and, and and here I'm I'm going to kind of bracket out those extreme instances of death and and loss which are just which are very, very difficult, I think, in many respects to comprehend, much less to fully confront. But in terms of what's left behind, it's the inter ethnic or the violence that's been taking place between uh, Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians uh, in cities that have had quite a remarkable record and live as a remarkable moral witness of the possibilities of coexistence, of mutual regard, of deference, of the practices of peace. We say that the uh, threatened eviction of residents of Sheikh Jarrah are reminiscent of the Nakba, but for, and sorry, there's no but there, I'm saying, and along with that, the images of Jewish shops being ransacked and synagogues being torched uh, is highly reminiscent for many Jews as well of the uh, German and Polish pogroms. The idea that this fragile civic fabric upon which the possibility of a pluralistic democracy or say a binational democracy might be based is being damaged in this way that for me, simply in terms of the long-term consequences, that actually fills me with more dread than I think almost anything else. Yes, I, I certainly share your concerns. And uh, I think that uh, the word fragile for the fabric of, uh, of these relationships is, is a correct one. 
all people or most people are at the end of the day, they want to live and they want to work and they want to raise their kids. And I think that certainly applies to, uh, to the Israeli Palestinians. But this doesn't mean that they are indeed uh, being citizens are all equal citizens. And therefore, there is a lot of resentment that is uh, you know, underlying and, and uh, has now surfaced, I mean, as part of, of what is taking place. So I, I share your, your concern about the impact of the current situation, but I think that there needs to be a lot more uh, work done to make sure that this uh, fragile uh, fabric of relationship is not only able to survive the current spate, but uh, becomes healthier. Because uh, even in those uh, you know mixed cities where people live together, and as as you correctly point out, there's a lot more civility and a lot more uh, even friendliness than uh, than maybe in uh, in the relation with West Bank Palestinians or, or Gazan Palestinians. Even there, there's a lot uh, of work to be done. So uh, how will that end? And to what extent can we hope for a, a positive advancement in the relationship between people, between two people, is uh, yeah, both a major concern and, and something that uh, we need to, uh, everyone needs to work more on. And I'm saying everyone because I think that uh, international public opinion, international media and uh, and other governments have uh, have a role to play here as well. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined by A.L. Mayroz, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Uh, A.L., I want to pick up a thread here. We're talking here about the fragility of that relationship and conviviality or the opposite of that between peoples. What we haven't yet mentioned is the fragility of relationships within peoples. Mm. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on how much of a significant factor you think that is. So, for example, on the Israeli side, I mean, when was the last time Israel had a functioning government? What was the last budget that got passed? It seems like it's always about to have an election. And you've seen under Netanyahu the the introduction of some elements I think we could probably call far right within into the governing structure and notwithstanding the fact that you had this coalition that Scott mentioned earlier that was about to form um, that would have involved some Palestinian representation within that governing coalition. But that sort of rightward move in Israeli politics has been happening now for years. And then on the Palestinian side, the Fatah and Hamas conflict has mm. been going on forever. Oh, sorry, forever is a loaded word to use in this context <laughs> for a long time. And you've just seen now uh, elections under Fatah-controlled territory called off much to Hamas's chagrin, which then leads Hamas in a position of wanting to assert itself in various ways for the purposes of its own what we might call domestic political reasons. So these are all things that are going on in the background. I suppose I'm landing on you to tell me how much they should be in the foreground. Like how how important are they in understanding the the fragility of the situation between the peoples? I think it's a I think it's a good and valid point. Uh, you know, for outsiders trying to make sense and understand uh, the conflict, uh, it's so difficult to explain. And and one of the reasons is because there are no two sides, as I mentioned already. There's so many sides, and and there is enough of uh, you know animosity and differences of opinion in 
in each of the two camps, we can call them two camps, to uh, feed uh, you know, many, many different conflicts as well. So, for example, if you look at uh, you know, Israel, the, the gradual shift over the last uh, 20 odd years to the right, that has certainly made it much more difficult for any hope of, uh, of compromises is very significant in how we can or should move forward because the rise of, uh, if you like, uh, religious uh, fundamentalism on both sides uh, that has uh, exacerbated the problem, but also, uh, I guess you can say, challenges of historical narratives about how things uh, turned out and why. I'll give just a, an example of uh, maybe a couple of uh, historical uh, narratives that are debated both within the camps or within the Israeli camp and, and between the camp is the question of uh, what happened uh, in 2000 when the last major effort uh, at uh, negotiating peace uh, broke down and led to the second intifada. Because for the Israelis, it was... Uh, Oh, we finally gave Hamas nine. Uh, sorry, uh, the Palestinians ninety percent or of the uh, West Bank, and they said no, and that led to the deterioration and to the collapse of the what used to be the the Jewish Israeli left. So, and then for the Palestinians, there was a totally different picture. So, I think there is a lot to be said for understanding the the complexities within each camp, but also to uh, acknowledge that. Uh, it has made it uh, increasingly difficult to uh, to find any any common ground and to build any kind of uh, of goodwill, if you like, on one side towards the other. And if I can just uh, continue that line of thought, I think that empathy and goodwill are critical component of of any any move forward, and are at the moment just missing completely. Because uh, in my based on my research in in other areas as well. Empathy almost equals in many times uh, identification, and there is no identification of one side uh, with the other. And when there's no identification, there's very little or no empathy. And uh, another factor that comes in here is fear, because when uh, I'm not a neuroscientist, but neuroscience science tells us that uh, the same part of the brain that generates empathy also generates fear. And when fear takes over, there's very little room for empathy to arise. And, and that's a big problem, obviously, because especially on the Jewish side, but I'd say both sides, fear has played a major, major factor in the inability to build uh, mutual trust and to build uh, any kind of, uh, of uh, willingness to, uh, to compromise. Mm. Look, I, I think uh, only a very, very callous person or someone who wasn't paying sort of adequate attention would deny that there really are, uh, I'm not sure if I'd go so far as existential threats, but there really are, let's say, legitimate security concerns that various forms of, say, border security, checkpoints, even border walls, as grotesque as they may be, you know, the prospect of those who wish to commit indiscriminate violence is severe enough as to give some of those deterrence, some of those forms of security, a real national, uh, existential, even moral basis. But I, uh, I guess I, I wonder, though, Al, that and this, I guess, comes out particularly of my reading of, of Avishai Margolit's political philosophy, that one of the things that is, if you regard those as being on one level necessary, even if it's some expressions might be excessive, 
that what is entirely unnecessary are those daily forms of humiliation, those daily provocations that may well be expressions of, say, nationalist or religious uh, fervor or devotion, and may well be authentic in the sense that they are expressions of nationalist or religious devotion. But by their very carrying out, I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of marches marking the unification of Jerusalem through predominantly Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, uh, things that are needlessly humiliating or provocative. I spoke before about sacrifices. Wouldn't one of the relatively minor sacrifices that need to be made in order to encourage or cultivate the conditions in which empathy can take place be the, relinquish, the relinquishment of those practices that don't relate to existential dangers? It's, it seems to me that the, it's the giving up of many of the practices that daily humiliate uh, fellow citizens or another people. Uh, that's one of the things that, if you like, adds uh, poor salt onto the wounds. I think uh, I think you've raised two very important points. Uh, so in, re- in relation to existential threat, uh, for a long time I was uh, telling myself, look, Israel is no longer in a situation of, a, of such a, of such a threat. So why? Why is, is that being again hammered again and again in the in the Israeli media and so on? But just recently I thought about it and and even though maybe the country Israel is not under existential threat, you can't tell that to people because if a, if an Israeli is afraid of uh, you know going to a bus and being blown up or their children, or an Israeli is afraid that while sitting and eating dinner a rocket comes uh, you know from Gaza and and blow up the uh, blow the whole family up, then this is an expression of existential threat that continues to be even even if there is no existential threat to the country itself so now i've kind of changed my my view of what that means for for people not for the country but for people as to humiliation i think you touched a very important point uh, tom friedman published in the in 2003 in the in the new york times a piece called uh, the humiliation factor where he pointed out the importance of understanding uh, what humiliation is for so many people. He, he, he said it was the most single underappreciated force in international relations. And and I think he's right. If I can tell a very quick story. Uh, many years ago, I was uh, in Ladakh in India and uh, having just climbed you know, a very high mountain, I was full of myself, uh, sitting in a cafe and this old Ladakhi beggar woman came to me and uh, she extended her hand and, and said one rupee. And I've been in India for a while, and kids often come to you and they ask for one rupee, and and travelers, uh, you know, make fun with them, and they say two rupees, and the children say one pen, and they say two pen. So when that old lady came and and asked for one rupee, I said to her, two rupees. And I'll never forget the look she gave me. It was full of disgust. She reached out into her lap, took out a two rupee note, threw it in my face and stormed out of the cafe before I could move. And I, the lesson she taught me about dignity and humiliation, I'm carrying with me for the rest of my life because this understanding of, of what humiliation is about and what dignity and respect are about is something that is so missing, especially, I think, in the Israel, as you said, in the Israel, on the Israeli side of, of how important that is and how endemic 
or, or basic that is for so many cultures, including the Palestinians. So I, I think I thank you for raising that because it's such an important point. Yeah, it's a really important point, actually, Scott. And it it's important on all sorts of registers. So, you know, in the moral register, which is, I think, what the register in which you're raising it. But even just at the pragmatic level, it's it's an incredibly important thing because humiliated people are not people from whom you will be safe. Mm. Um, this is a, a very common refrain. So the calculation seems to be, and we, we experienced this even in Western countries during the war on terror, right? the, the experience seems to be that you take whatever hard measures you think are necessary in order to ensure security and you don't calculate the way in which those measures make you less secure because of the humiliation that they engender. And you see this time and time again. When, when I was crossing between the Palestinian territories and Israel through the checkpoint, I was with a driver who was an Israeli, he was a Jewish Israeli, but I think his background may have been Yemeni or something, and he looked quite dark, so they often mistook him for an Arab. And he said to me, as we went through this checkpoint, we got stopped and all that sort of thing, he said, it just always happens to me, <laughs> mm-hmm. as, in, as opposed to other Israelis who it doesn't happen to. That was what he was saying. And he, completely of his own volition, just used the phrase, he said, it's a little bit humiliating. And I remember that moment really stuck with me because it was like, okay, so if this guy is experiencing that and he's an Israeli, so he can more or less get into Israel without too much hassle, like it's not a problem in the way it would be if you were Palestinian. What happens if you multiply that? And I, and I do think that is something that mis, is missing from a lot of Israeli analyses is the effect of the occupation and the effect of of that on the psyche of a people, the, the humiliation of it. It's not to say that that is the sum total of the problems with Palestinian life. And I think one of the Israeli arguments that I think um, people on the Palestinian side probably don't engage with enough is the effect of corruption and the kinds of governance that pertain in the Israeli sorry in the in the Palestinian territories mm-hmm. and the effect that that has on Palestinian life in a way that isn't really directly related to Israel that that's something that is an internal Palestinian matter but I don't think you can airbrush out of it if, I, I don't think you can airbrush either of these things out I suppose is what I'm saying and the accumulation of humiliation must surely sound in all kinds of dangerous ways which surely must also mean, though, that the commission of acts of genuine dignity or dignification, far from simply being overwhelmed, they may well also have an exponential effect. I, I guess in, in these kinds of historically, morally overdetermined environments, it may well be that not only bad acts or callous acts or cruel acts resonate across various levels, uh, and and sort of have that disproportionate effect. But it may well also be that acts of genuine grace and kindness and sacrifice and generosity can also have that disproportionate uh, um, uh, effect uh, in the sense of being sort of morally exemplary. Maybe. I, I Maybe. suspect they get buried. But who knows? I, think, I think the problem is that the continuing festering violence uh, makes uh, these, uh, you know, what you say is is true, and and lots of, you know, I have I know people who are working together collaboratively, Jews and and Palestinians on on building bridges, but the festering, the ongoing festering violence is just, it's so easy with you know one spate of violence to destroy 
long-term efforts at, at building such relationships. So if you are hurt, if you are suffering, then there's, uh, you know, basically you can either blame the other side, become full of, uh, of vengeance and, and continue to exacerbate the, the tensions in the situation, or you can adopt, you know, either you can call it even a more pragmatic I think in this case, uh, you know, uh, tolerance and uh, and compassion may equal uh, pragmatism by saying, uh, what's the point? We've been doing this for 100 years. What did we get out of it? Let's find a way to to think of the other as somebody who's also suffering. And uh, in the same way, we don't want to suffer. They don't want to suffer. And the only way is to come out of this. And And in some cases, they talk about conflicts, that there is a ripening of conflict where Everyone is so tired that the condition and the circumstances are then ready for uh, more willingness to make those painful compromises. But I think in, in our situation, in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, situation, the objective challenges are so so uh, huge, if you like, and, and the forces and the actors that take place and take prominent role are so significant to leading it in, in you know, more adversarial direction that uh, it is very difficult to maintain those uh, efforts at, at, if you like, you know, kindness and, and willingness to, to work together. So uh, mm. uh, I'm not saying that these should not continue, and I think they, they should, and there needs to be a lot more support for them, but uh, yes, very difficult. Mm. And then you use the word compromise, which takes us back to kind of where we started. Um, yeah, we are going to have to leave it there. We are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for helping us out today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's Eyal Moroz, who's a senior lecturer on human rights and international peace and security in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We are now finished for the week, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.